Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for the promises of Holy Scripture that are sure and certain in Christ our Lord. And you have staked your name and your glory upon them and their certitude in our future. And for this, we are so grateful that we are absolutely assured of the eternal presence of God being our home in future glory because of the resurrecting power of the Spirit's indwelling, because of Christ's work on Calvary, and because of the Father's perfect plan, electing for Himself a people unto the praise of His great name from before time began. Lord, as we read the record of Your beautiful history, as You are the architect of redemption, and we find all the facades and the structures and the foundation stones and all of the various elements of what you have built, Lord, presented to us in Scripture, I pray that you would fix our knowledge according to this standard and that you would equip us, Lord, to stand strong in a day of storms of unbelief so that the foundation of Christ and His proclaimed Word might prove sufficient grounding for us in any test and trial. I also pray that as you are proclaimed that you would be glorified and magnified through the proclamation of your scriptures today and that the Spirit would use that means to draw the lost unto confession of their sin and faith in Christ alone for their salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to grow your kingdom one soul at a time as the angels rejoice and rejoice again as you continue to draw the lost unto salvation. Thank you, God, for the power of your plan. Thank you for the power of your holy word. Thank you for the power of your spirit applying it to us this day. We pray that you would do all of this in the name of Jesus and for your glory. In his name we pray, amen. Praise God. Well, glory to the Lord for gathering us safely once again around the great privilege of proclaiming and appreciating and meditating on his holy scripture. So I beg you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6 this morning, and let us continue with the account of events preceding the flood, the testimony of the calling of Noah, and God's work in history along these lines. Today's message comes from Genesis 6, verses 9 through 18. Genesis 6, 9 through 18 will be our primary text today. The title of this morning's message is, God Saw, God Said. God saw, God said. And we see this construction in the text, in the language, uh, recurring. And so there's a reference to God's oversight, the God's uh, perception, the knowledge of God, and then uh, there's a relationship between that and God's word and later God's actions. And so this is a theme in our text. The aim of this morning's message is to behold these foundational truths of our hope in Christ prefigured in Noah's testimony. To behold the foundational truths of our hope in Christ that are prefigured all the way back to Genesis 6 in the testimony of Noah. Would you stand with me out of reverence for God's Word today? And let us behold these Scriptures. Listen in your hearing as the infallible Word of God is proclaimed to you in Genesis 6, 9-18. through 18. Here we have the Holy Scriptures. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. 
for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set a door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Verse 17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So Genesis, as we briefly noted before, documents a precedent-establishing record of the relationship between God's knowledge and His power. Omniscience, God knows all things, is the technical term for God's knowledge. Omnipotence, omni-all, potence, power, is the technical term for God's power. God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful. And these character attributes of God show up in our text today in this framework of God saw and God said. As we see these attributes of God referenced repeatedly in the text, this language indicates God saw and God spoke concerning the state of affairs at the time of Noah. God is supervising the earth even in this state of intense decline in such a way as to demonstrate His authority and to show His glory in spite of sin. And this would come largely by way of of judgment. This divine assessment, then, unfolds in actual historical events as the uh, record of Noah's legacy, his life, continues. Please note, it is very significant in the text, uh, specific reference points to real-time, real history, real people, real events, Real circumstances, real physics, real science, real creation. Noah was 500 years old, it says in verse 32, when he received this call or these events began to unfold. The Lord declares that there will be 120 years before the flood will come. Sure enough, in about the 100th year since that 500 mark when Noah was 600, his age is referenced again at the conclusion of some of these flood events. Also, we have a record of Noah's family and his history, and we have very specific references, as we'll see in due course, to the way this boat will be constructed. All this to indicate that God is powerfully, actually involved in every last detail of physics of, physics of the earth of history. So as Noah's legacy continues, God's power is seen as the story unfolds, and we'll get to these aspects in the future. God sends animals to Noah a sovereign act, a supernatural act, but it took place in Noah's experience. He wrote about it, or uh, rather, Moses wrote about the actual events. God sends animals to Noah. God closes the door of the ark. God pours rain from from heaven's windows. God unleashes the fountains of the great deep. So these evidences, or these record, or these events that are recorded in this passage 
and those that surround it is evidence of the imminent hand of God. Imminent means in our experience, tangible, direct, in contact with. God is eminent. He is over. He is transcendent above. God is also imminent, involved, personal, and tangibly evident in things uh, and, and, and events as we see them today in our text. Absolutely essential aspects of the nature of God. This is the imminent hand of God judging His enemies even as He provides for the salvation of His covenant people. At this time in history, who are God's covenant people? Does anyone know? Young people? Who are God's covenant people? His special people that He will save through the waters of judgment. Noah and his? Very good, and his son's wives. That is exactly right. God provides for the salvation of His covenant people, that is Noah's family, eight people. And this reminds us, as we continue to emphasize in our series in Genesis, history, according to the Bible, is time measured by the progress of redemption. Time measured by the progress of redemption. And here we have a day of the Lord moment, a day of the Lord in coming judgment, and a day of the Lord in salvation provided, and this will soon visit the planet with cataclysmic consequences as a result of man's metastasizing, greatly advancing sin. Furthermore, the detail of God's revelation with respect to His intentions signals a profound unfolding of future events. God carefully chooses specific details in the way that He accomplishes His will because they foretell future events. They will mark, or these events mark the hand of God that will play out again in a pattern, in a, in a recognizable pattern in history future as He grants salvation from the cataclysmic effects of sin once again uh, in the future of Israel and ultimately in the future of true Israel through Christ our Lord and Savior. Thus, Genesis continues to paint a Spirit-inspired portrait of the character and intentions of the Lord of creation and the Lord of salvation. The character and intentions of the Lord are featured as we see Him as Lord of His creation and Lord of salvation in our text. Let's consider this heading today, Revelatory Constructs from Genesis uh, chapter 6. Three we'll emphasize this morning. Number one, God's judgments. In the revelation of God, there is a construct of judgment that we see prefigured in these events. Secondly, God's covenant. The name of covenant in the Hebrew is bereath, and this is the first reference to the term covenant in the Scriptures. It's introduced to us. This construct, it's an understanding, a framework of God's relationship with man. So judgment, covenant, and finally, oracle. There's a term that I've used in the past called event oracle. What this means is there are events in, histories that, in history that also proclaim the Word of God. And these events have profound significance in establishing, you could say, perhaps an archetype or a pattern or a picture, a type, a shadow, a prefiguring, and so forth, a symbol. And so there are event oracles um, going, uh, featured in our text as well. Three revelatory constructs, judgment, covenant, oracle. So let's consider these a little more closely today. First of all, under God's judgments, we note this construct, which is also the title of our message, God saw and God said. So the earth is being, becoming more and more corrupt, 
But the Lord responds. Notice in Genesis 5.5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, the Lord saw, the Lord said, and it continues, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. This relationship to what God sees and what God says recurs in our text in verses 12 and 13. Note here, and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. God saw, God said. First of all, God saw. This idea of God seeing is speaking to divine oversight. God is imminent, as we've already stated. He is involved in His creation. He is presently, even now, superintending all events in His providence of all of history, all of creation, and all of this universe. Every material thing, every event, every occasion, every cause, every effect is superintended by a sovereign God. God sees all. God's oversight is much more than our observation, our observational abilities. A journalist tries to be as objective as possible, but even then he can never ultimately separate himself from his bias, and even if he could, he is subject to his own limitations. If a journalist wants to get to the bottom of a story, he has to interview people he thinks may have key witnesses. But he can't ultimately always tell if the person who he talks to is lying uh, or if he's telling the truth. He can't recreate the events in front of him so as to witness them with firsthand knowledge to every last detail. He's not intimately acquainted with all the causes in history past that led up to the event that he's recording today. So you see, the perception of man is inherently limited. We can only report on that which we can see by limited perspective. Not so with God. God sees absolutely exhaustively and comprehensively. Even the names of God reference this fact. He is the Alpha and the Omega, which is to say in the Greek, He is the beginning and the end. He sees the end from the beginning. There's no limitation in the foresight, in the knowledge, in the oversight, in the superintendence of our sovereign God. So this evil that the earth has descended into did not come as a surprise to him. Instead, what we see is a superintendence of God interacting in this situation in a way that will demonstrate His character and show forth His his glory through two things, judgment and salvation. God saw. Now, this language is in contrast to what we referenced last week, a man's sight and then a corresponding action. Notice Genesis 6 verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. This language is reminiscent of original sin, Genesis 3.6. Just a reminder there as well. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So you see that construct there? Sin is a scene through the limited perception of humans, and then taking unto ourselves this action without regard to the Word of God. 
the lie that the enemy sold Adam and Eve in the beginning is that they could be like God. In other words, they could have divine oversight. They could be omniscient. And somehow this tree held out the secret of this advancement to this state of godlike status. That was a lie. Man is always ever dependent on the Word of God. His perception, his ability, his knowledge will always ever be limited. We are always, in technical philosophical terms, contingent. That is, we are created. We are dependent upon the Lord who sees all and knows all, knows the end from the beginning, and that will always be the state of things. When we are in sin, we foolishly live as if our perception is sufficient that we know enough, that our experience is strong enough or profound enough to make a good decision, that we have the ability in our sense and our uh, knowledge of things or a gut feel, whatever, to make decisions that are wise for ourselves. Whenever man does this, he sees and he takes without respect to the Word of God, and it always corrupts. It always ends up in sin. Why? Because he is declaring himself independent of the Lord foolishly, when it was God who creates him and sustains him and then pursues an end of idolatry, that is sin. The reason that the world was descending into such great wickedness is because people were seeing and taking. They were trusting their own desires and their perceptions. They were disregarding the Word of God. And now we will see a sharp contrast. The perception and preferences of man to the perception and the uh, preferences, if you will, or the will of a sovereign God. Who will win that contest? God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention, amen, of his thoughts, of his heart was only evil continually. It grieved him to his heart, so God says, I will blot out man, and so it continues. This language of corruption means decaying unto destruction. The Lord saw that the earth was corrupt, so the assessment of the situation from God's perspective, the doctor, if you will, um, analyzing his patient and delivering a prognosis, the Lord says that the earth is corrupt. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, verse 11. And what this means is rot, decay, unto destruction. The earth is full of maggots, as it were, eating dead flesh until the form of that uh, organic body and so forth eventually disintegrates, falls apart, and returns to the dust. The earth was returning uh, through this corruption to a disorganized state. As such, we see this playing out even in the lives and the lifestyle of men. That is to say, when man lives in denial of the oversight of God, he throws open the doors of debauchery and society collapses into violence. When man lives in denial of the oversight of God, if they just make decisions according to their own perception, they disregard the Word of God, they live in denial of God's sovereignty, they do not fear Him, they do not recognize His authority over them, then man throws open the doors of debauchery, they welcome in, he welcomes in corruption, and society collapses into violence. Verse 13, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and hence the judgment will come. There was no fear of man in the eyes of the population by and large at this time. They did not recognize an omniscient God who superintends over His creation, who is Lord and whom they must answer. And as a result, there is judgment coming. 
Um, when a society does not recognize that they serve at the pleasure of a power that's stronger than their governor, government, more important than their president, has more power than their legislature, and has an immutable standard of right and wrong, that society will open up the doors to debauchery and violence. That corruption will come in like decay. I've been praying for someone who has had a rapid uh, infection that has been overtaking their body and they're facing amputation right now. And the race of the doctors with this infection is, is fairly profound. And this corrupting influence in the body is such that if that limb is not removed, that infection will race eventually in fairly short order through the whole body and and could be fatal to that person. That's a picture of the corrupting nature of sin. When man lives as he wills, as he ought, when he disregards the Word of God, it's to let gangrene fester in an open wound. It's to allow, it's to rub cancer into open sores is to welcome infection into uh, humans, uh, into humanity generally, into society, uh, broadly speaking, and it will lead to a, cor- a, a corruption that will manifest itself in sin and in violence. We see this in our day today. We see it even in our pop culture. Think of uh, zombie movies. A zombie is this character in, you know, kind of American modern pop culture folklore who has lost its ability to reason, is governed by its most base desires. It's sort of a dehumanized representation of the walking dead, as it were. And this is a picture of the corrupting influence of sin. Mankind at the time of Noah were like spiritual zombies. They were walking around without knowledge of the Most High, without paying heed to the message that He had given them, that they had better live in light of Him or they would face judgment or that they had better recognize that their only hope was in the promised seed of the woman crushing uh, Satan's head. And as man descended into more and more corruption, they became like the walking dead, like zombies seeking only after their own desires, welcoming the decay of violence into their society. And so this was the state of things. And this is the prognosis that God issued as a result. In Psalm 94, the psalmist records the following. He says in verse 8, Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of men, and they are but a breath. This is a message that the world needed to hear at the coming of no, at, at the uh, time of Noah. Yes, indeed, it was, it was the fools who denied the, the divine oversight of the Lord. It was the walking dead who disregarded His holy word, as it were, and they welcomed into their society whole-scale corruption. They were dull people. If they could hear, did it not even occur to them where their ear came from in the first place? If they could see with their physical eye, did it not occur to them who made their eye in the first place? Had they not witnessed God's disciplining ability to take authority over man and to execute His holy will? Did they not fear Him? No, they did not, and thus they were fools. Who teaches man knowledge? How do we know anything if God has not revealed it to us, at least in His province, if not through divine revelation? Mankind is but a breath, and man would soon know how fragile he really was when God sent His judgment 
by way of flood. God saw, God said. So there's a relationship between God's divine oversight and His Word. God delivers a proclamation. In His grace and mercy, He reveals to man His intentions. And so He says that He will bring judgment because of these circumstances. God said, I will blot out man from whom I, I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God said in verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Uh, we have been studying, the kids have been studying about uh, evidences of God's Word. How do we know or how can we uh, see that God's Word is verified by different measures like prophecies that were fulfilled by the ability of the Word to transcend all people's places, historical eras and times, and to relevantly speak to the heart of man in each and every situation, no matter who they are, where they come from. This is the Word of God. Uh, this is evidence of God's divine oversight. When God uh, takes uh, stock of the situation of man's heart, He issues a decree. He reveals the truth to us. And it is a gracious gift indeed. We've been speaking to the young people in this study about how precious the Word of God really is. Because only in light of this sovereign assessment can we really understand who He is in His holiness and who we are in our sin. Only in light of the Word of God can we accurately can we with a sober, true instrument and standard assess our situation and then determine what a wise man would do? And so God tells us in His Scripture, as a result of this corruption, this decay unto destruction, what He will do. He is planning on bringing whole-scale, cataclysmic destruction, destroying every living thing, aside from a few exceptions that will be saved through His instrument of deliverance. And this is the situation that is just around the corner. As we see this language, I will blot out man from the face of the land, we see God communicating His work and His works and His intentions. As he's, when He says, I am sorry for creating man, we see Him communicating His displeasure for sin. We see His holiness revealed. When He says in verse 13, I will destroy, this actually is the same word in the Hebrew as corrupt. In other words, sin will run its course and God will simply speed up the destructive nature of these sins by bringing destruction upon man. But it's interesting to note that there is a relationship between sin and corruption such that a sinful lifestyle has judgment built right into it. If you follow your base desires, you will live a life that is self-destructive. This is the way things are. There is only one truth. There is only one way. There is only one means of man's assurance, safety, salvation, of man's flourishing, if you will, and this is following his holy word and law. And any alternate route might promise happiness in the short term, but will always only lead to destruction in the long term. And sometimes at points of God's sovereign choosing, he speeds up that well-deserved destruction in a day of the Lord moment. And so this is one of those times. God is speaking. He is saying through his word, that sin deserves judgment. And sin is a horrible infraction. It's a horrible crime against the holiness of God. Thus, we see with this whole scale destruction of the earth how serious sin truly is and how holy our awesome God is as well. God saw and God said. And then God specified 
how He will bring His judgment. He'll bring judgment in this time in history by water. Notice a few verses. Verse 13. Uh, First of all, in the second portion, Behold, the Lord says, I will destroy them with the earth. Speaking of all of the living creatures outside of the ark. Verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Verse 18, he says, I will establish my covenant with you. But then we're back to judgment again with an I will statement in 7, verse 4. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made, again he says, I will blot out from the face of the ground. God is specifying how He will bring judgment. He says, I will do these things. I will act decisively so there can be and will be no no doubt of my sovereign hand. Do you know that geology all over this world emphasizes, testifies to this very fact? When you see gorges like the Grand Canyon carved out as if by rushing water, when you see the earth and the after effects of the flood, as it's viewed from drone, you know, from drones piloting over the surface, we see evidence, in my view, of cataclysmic destruction of worldwide, a global flooding. Think of our oceans. What percentage of the world is covered by oceans? Does anyone know? 75% or so? So three quarters of the earth is covered by proof that God is sovereign, that sin is serious, and that His righteousness demands judgment. Uh, the Thompsons flew to Hawaii recently. Did it take a long time to get there in the airplane, you guys? How long does it take to get to Hawaii, Isaac? Like, like eight hours. So eight hours over the ocean. You can fly and fly and fly, and you will see nothing but waves for hours and hours, even though you're flying at hundreds of miles per hour. And what is this? This is evidence of God's specific historical judgment for sin. Is man, does man have any excuse? In Romans 1, it says that man is without excuse because nature itself testifies that he is a sinner and that God is holy, that God is creator. I submit to you that nature itself testifies that God is the judge of sin as well. You can easily imagine how devastating it would be to have our entire globe covered by water If you take an airplane flight over the Pacific, there would be nothing but a formless void, but but the chaos of the seas, stirred by winds and storms, whipped up into a fury at a hurricane or or a typhoon, and man would be at a total loss to find place, to, uh, to find roots, to build a shelter, and so forth, and the earth would return to a desolate place. And this is what happened in the great flood. God specified how He would judge the world. He says, for behold, verse 17, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. This is incredible. As we see this, it does strike us that the events here are powerful indeed. They speak to God's authority to punish sin. They remind us of hell at the end of our life if we do not have a Savior 
who can wash our sins away if there is not hope for redemption and ought to make us shudder with the fear of God as we consider these consequences. But it also speaks to God's future plan of salvation from these circumstances. That is to say, the flood is referenced in future scriptures. I'll just note one for you. The specific judgment, the way that God destroyed the earth, figures into Peter's message to his readers in 1 Peter 3. He says, for instance, in uh, verses 19 through 22, we'll begin in 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So why did God judge specifically through worldwide flood, this water covering the earth, snuffing out life? In part, it's because this picture would become more clear in the future, namely, that we are brought safely through death. That water covering the earth is a picture of death swallowing up mankind and their sin. But we, brothers and sisters, saints of God in this room, we are brought safely through death as through the waters of baptism or as Noah was brought through the flood. If we are in Christ, we are resurrected or we have the hope of resurrection. We will pass through the waters of judgment in an ark of salvation. And so the specifics of the way that God judged figure into the specifics of His plan of salvation, and they are pictured even in baptism. That's a revelatory construct from Genesis 6, namely God's judgment. What He saw, what He said, and what He specifically declared has consequence for sin. Second major construct, God's covenant. This is a revelatory structure that we see introduced in Genesis 6. Notice, first of all, that God not only saw that the world was corrupt because of sin, but he also saw and singled out a single man. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There is an oversight of the Lord that stems from his grace and his mercy, his kindness and his intent to save. I can't help but recall a passage we've referenced often in recent messages from Numbers 6, 24 through 26, the high priestly prayer of Aaron. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And then this phrase, may the Lord lift up His countenance upon you. That prayer again is that the Lord's favor, His sight, His face, His countenance, His smile would be oriented toward you in grace, in mercy, in, in, in compassion, in salvation. This countenance of the Lord was upon Noah. And Noah found favor, consequently, in the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord, as it were, the divine oversight of the Lord, render, as, it is, as we see then, mankind into two categories. Those that upon His analysis are deserving of judgment and thus will be the victims, they will be the, uh, uh, those who are destroyed in the wake of His cataclysmic judgments, and those who under the oversight of God's means of salvation have found favor in His eyes, have found grace and mercy ultimately and only through Jesus Christ, their Savior and Lord. 
And so Noah, too, experienced the sight, the oversight of the Lord. But the eyes of the Lord were turned to Noah, not in wrath, but instead in favor. These are the generations of Noah. Again, that's a structural note in the text, in the literary structure of Genesis. It signals or it singles out an important moment in the record of redemption through history. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Again, evidence to the eyes of the Lord finding favor with Noah is his righteousness, his blamelessness, and the fact he shared in relationship with the Almighty something akin to what Enoch enjoyed, walking with the Lord. Psalm 94, we've referenced it once already. There's contrasting language that the psalmist speaks of. And we already notice the eyes of God um, as they render people fools who deny Him. But notice, conversely, what the psalmist also says, verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. Does that not describe Noah? Could that not describe us? Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. The Lord corrects those whom He loves. But if the Lord's eyes of favor are upon you, then His word is corrective and instructive, growing you in your Christ-likeness. Whom you teach out of the law, do you love His law? Do you love His word? Or are you one who disregards His word and His oversight and is now just wholly given over to the corruption of your sin? If so, hear His word and repent. Because only those who find themselves in right relationship with Him can say uh, with the psalmist in verse 13 that they have found rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. Noah suffered, no doubt, under the scorn and mockery of his neighbors as over a century he built this instrument of salvation. No doubt Noah experienced the persecution and the derision from those who surrounded him in this wicked culture. After all, all their thoughts were only wicked continually. But Noah had reassurance in the word of God that there would be rest from his days of trouble and that the Lord would dig a pit for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people, the psalmist continues, verse 14 of Psalm 94. He will not abandon his heritage. Who are his heritage? Those Uh, They are those who are bound to Him by covenant. In the days of Noah, His heritage was Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And the Lord would not abandon them. The Lord lifted up His countenance upon them. The Lord turned His eyes of favor and compassion upon them. And they, consequently, appreciated His word, lived according to His word, and were obedient to Him even in the construction of this vessel of deliverance. God saw, God also said something to Noah. God said back in our text, Genesis 6, 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. Depending on your posture in your life, whether you are under the wrath of God as a wicked sinner, having not realized the salvation of Jesus Christ your Lord, The Word of God comes in two ways. One is the promise of cataclysmic destruction that you deserve in your sin. The second is, I will establish and have established through Christ my covenant with you. And in so many words, I have provided a way of salvation in the ark of your deliverance and rescue through the waters of judgment. 
God's word came to the ears of the blessed and the favored Noah by way of a promise, a covenant, a hope for salvation. Uh, young people, definition of covenant. What is a covenant? Can you, what is it? Can anyone... A promise. That's exactly correct. A covenant is a promise or an agreement between two or more parties. Now, when God makes a promise, does He ever break it? Absolutely not. Uh, when God swears, who does He swear to when He makes a promise? He swears to Himself. Yes, the promise is to Noah. He swears by Himself because He has nothing higher to swear. So what this means is the sovereign God of all history and creation and redemption has staked His own name and reputation upon the fulfillment of His promises to His people. Will God provide a way of salvation for Noah? Yes, absolutely yes, even though worldwide destruction is coming. Will God save us as... uh, as baptism pictures, through the waters of death unto resurrection life in Christ, absolutely He has staked His word and His promise upon it. God has seen and God has spoken. God gave Noah a covenant sign. Does anyone know what it was? It was a sign of the promise. Rainbow? Let's, let's see if that's correct. Noah... Uh, We find the the story of Noah continuing in Genesis 9, verse 9. The Lord says, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. For it is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And the Lord said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. That is correct. You guys got it. The rainbow was the sign of God's promise to Noah. The scriptures go on to describe covenant signs and covenant terms for those who are the favored of the Lord. For those who are His own, His people, Israel, His sons, believers, adopted uh, into the family of God. All these terms are covenant terms that refer to those who are in a relationship with Him. Those who are incorporated through the bonds of family in relationship to God the Father through Christ the Son by the affecting power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Galatians 4, 4-6 through 6 describes when it says that God sends the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And here, in the Word of God to Noah, we find a parallel to our own experience. That is, just as those uh, who were Noah's family were included in the covenant, the blessings of the covenant are extended to those who are in Noah. Notice the benefit of the covenant to Noah. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, your sons, and your wives with you. So just as the blessings of covenant are extended to those who are in Noah, namely his family, so the blessings of the new covenant are extended to us who are in Christ, the covenant head. Through adoption, we are incorporated into the blessings and the inheritance of Jesus Christ, our Lord. What He earned, 
what he deserved as a result of his work on Calvary and his perfect righteousness, that great blessing of his obedience before the Lord becomes our own because the blessings of the covenant are extended to those who are incorporated into Christ by the family bonds of holy adoption. This is the revelatory construct of covenant as it is introduced and as it is echoed all the way forward in the New Testament. Now, God specifies something. He gives specific instructions to Noah, highly specific. And this goes to the detail that I mentioned at the introduction that reminds us of a number of things about the nature of God and His work in history. This is Genesis 6.14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. So the species of wood is laid out. The schematics of the ark continue. The specifications, this uh, cut list for this huge boat is presented by divine revelation to Moses or to Noah, excuse me, its architect. The Lord continues, make rooms in the ark, it's the floor plan, cover it inside and out with pitch, that is the waterproofing uh, means. Verse 15, this is how you are to make it. The, the length of the ark, 300 cubits. Uh, 300 cubits, translate that into feet, somebody. 450 feet, thanks dad, it's breadth 50 cubits, uh, any a translation into feet there, about 75 a height of 30 cubits, which is about 45 feet. So a football field and a half long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. These are very tangible measurements. They're precise. It goes further. Verse 16, make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Now, uh, has anyone visited the ark encounter in Kentucky? It's a replica of what the ark may have looked like. Has anyone been there? Anyone been to Noah's Ark in Kentucky? Oh, I see. I see a hand in the back. So that, uh, replica, that replica is a life-size reproduction of what Noah's Ark may have looked like. And the reason that that Ark can be pretty specific is because of those verses that I just read to you. The naval engineer who worked on the design, one of the guys who worked on that design was actually converted to Christ as a result of these verses I just read to you. Why is that the case? Because he saw in these proportions that they were identical to what science has told us the most stable of cargo vessels are in the seas these days. In other words, this ratio and proportion of length to width to breadth and so forth is an ideal shape for stability on stormy seas. How could that have been known at this time? Well, we've been going through evidences of the authorship, the divine authorship of Scripture. This is one of those evidences. The precise schematics and the ratio for stability of the seagoing vessel being revealed in God's Word speaks to the divine authorship of the Bible. God knows His world. There's no physicist that is smarter than God. God knows what kind of vessel will allow man and all these animals to pass through the waters unscathed unto salvation once the global flood recedes. And so we see uh, in this highly specific language how God specified even the physical dimensions of the boat to make it the optimal means of escape for man. Pretty profound. But there's another reason why, or there is another uh, truth or construct that these specific, uh, that these, uh, specific instructions or schematics 
reminds us of or points to. That is to say, it is an event oracle, if you will. Uh, There are times in Scripture where God gives specific dimensions for things, and this is one of them. This is our final point this morning, a revelatory construct from Genesis 6. We've talked about His judgments, His covenant, and now we go to oracle. There are four, and you could study these on your own time, four moments in Scripture that correspond to these specific instructions for the building, the construction of Noah's Ark. They are firstly the tabernacle, and you can read of that in Exodus 25, 8 uh, through 16, and actually all the way to the end of the book of Exodus. Exodus 25 through 40, a huge portion of the text, and the climax of the book is given to highly specific instructions for the design and construction of the tabernacle. I wonder why. A second example, parallel example, the temple construction. This was Solomon's legacy. We see all of the building materials starting to be collected, the tail end of David's tenure as king. Then in 1 Kings 7 through 1 Kings 8, we see the artisans commissioned. We see the construction and architects, you know, coming together and building this place. And then Solomon praying and dedicating this highly specified place of God's dwelling with man according to these terms. Thirdly, we see temple schematics. I call this a second temple 2.0. This is Ezekiel 40 through 48. Again, eight chapters, the end of Ezekiel, climaxing in this phrase, the Lord is there. And Ezekiel, as he narrates this vision for us, He starts with measuring the temple, so many cubits wide, long, and so forth. Then he measures a river that flows forth from the temple, and ultimately he gives us the schematics, he gives us the layout, the plot map, if you will, of a divine city. And one of the last phrases in the book is, the Lord is there, and that's the name of the city. Huge clues. And then thirdly, you can turn to this one. This is Revelation 21. At the end of Scripture, almost at the very end, once again, Specific dimensions are laid out for a particular place. This is the new heavens in the, in the new earth, Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. And that's an echo, I submit, from Ezekiel 48 where the uh, prophet declares the name of the city is, quote, the Lord is there. Goes on to promise the joys, to lay out the joys and expectations of this new dwelling place Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And as we continue to read, we find detailed measurements. Verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, and so forth. goes on to describe the foundation stones, the gates, 
and these beautiful architectural and specific schematics of this holy city. So what can we learn from this? It's the idea of event oracle. The Lord gave specific instructions for the place that represented the dwelling of man with the Lord. It was the place of assurance, deliverance, safety, security, where covenant promises would be fulfilled. And these schematics were given in the construction of Noah's Ark. They were also given in the construction of the temple, the place of God's meeting with man, the place where the covenant terms were satisfied, the place where the sacrifice was provided. Noah's sacrifice, when he left the ark, sacrifices were offered, that blood of atonement was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And so God's dwelling was with man, symbolically, in the ark, in the tabernacle. And so it was in the temple, in the second temple, all pointing forward to a place, a specific place, with hard and fast uh, dimensions laid out in Scripture that is the hope for our future in Christ of this cubicle structure of the holy city of God where you and I will enjoy the blessings and benefits of the covenant fully realized in glorious, manifest presence of a holy God with man because Christ's blood has atoned for our sin. And this is the message through the Scripture of these particular instances where God lays out His plan, if you will, His blueprint for salvation. And isn't it something that His blueprint includes specific measurements? Of course, I appreciate all these analogies because I build houses on a day-to-day basis. So it speaks my language, but I think to some degree we can all relate. Pretty cool. So in closing this morning, as we put two and two together, with the benefit of further revelation in Scripture, we see God's Word proclaiming His inescapable judgments outside of His covenant terms. But in His covenant terms, His Word declares that there is safety, assurance, security, hope, and a glorious future for all who are in Christ. And these terms are specifically laid out as the exclusive hope for our salvation through the redemptive and delivering power, ultimately, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and His work on Calvary. God saw and God said. He saw the wickedness of man. He declared it worthy of judgment. But those who have seen His countenance and His favor has shown upon them, He declared a way of salvation for them. And to those whose ears have been opened by the Holy Spirit, cry out, yes and amen. I confess my sins and I believe in you, Christ, as my Noah, if you will, as my ark of salvation, as the door through which I enter unto eternal life, as the means of escape from the waters of judgment, as the resurrecting power through the cataclysm of death, and so on and so forth. Christ is our hope of deliverance from sin. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for what your scriptures hold out for us by way of glorious revelation of your power and your willingness and your ability to absolutely sufficiently save those upon whom you have set your love and your affections. Lord, I pray that if there are any who are outside the covenant this morning, as it were, if as they hear the word of God, I pray that you would shine the countenance of your face upon them and sovereignly change their heart, that they may heed the cry to enter into the ark of Jesus Christ, for the salvation of their sins before death catches up to them or before this world is ultimately destroyed as by fire, the way your scriptures prophesy. For those who are in Christ, 
who cling to him as our hope and stay, as our ark through the waters of judgment. We are so thankful upon reading your scriptures that you have sovereignly in your grace and mercy alone provided this means for us. Help us to worship and obey you accordingly, to live in light of these glorious truths. To the praise of your great name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.